This podcast is created in partnership with Film Studies and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. We acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand, as well as the Darug people, where we all grew up. We pay our respects to those who have cared for and continue to care for country. I wish I knew how to quit. I see Right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Get away from her, you bitch! I'm gonna go, do you want me to go f***ing flash your lights? Take two. Film verse. Film. Hello, friends, and welcome to our very special Battle of the Blockbusters episode of Film vs. Film, the podcast where every episode we throw two different films into the ring, discuss their place in history, their modern virtues, and how they stack up against each other which film will hot up and which film will be left on the cutting room floor. Today we're looking at the two big US summer blockbusters of 2023 with Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny versus Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Yes, it's the battle of the franchises featuring one of the original characters that originated way back at the beginning of the blockbuster era with the Lucas Spielberg invention of Indiana Jones versus a modern action franchise that has been defined by the star power of its enigmatic lead, Tom Cruise. How will these two nostalgic franchises perform at the box office and which film does the best job of passing the torch into the 2020s? My name is Craig Anderson, which was actually the name of the family dog growing up, which I stole. I also lived as a dog for several years. <laughs> Joining me today, as always, are my two best friends from high school, a man who was captured hacking into the CIA and had to make the choice to join this podcast. It's Herschel Isaacs. Good evening, Craig. Good evening, Bruce. Um, our first dabble into a different kind of format. So very, very exciting. Very exciting. Well, we'll see how we go. And joining us is a guy who got stuck in a Herschel mask when breaking into high school. (laughs) (laughs) The identical twin who chose the correct cup but filled it with West Coast cooler and got hammered. Associate Professor of Film at the University of Sydney, Bruce Isaacs. I have absolutely no idea what the hell you're talking about. I mean, I'm just joking. Last Crusade. Um, Oh, Last Crusade. Oh, okay. Um, I did think uh, this afternoon that this is the first clear evidence that we've sold out to corporate money. <laughs> it, it's all down here. Can we make corporate, it clear? Corporate money is supposed to involve some I mean, sort of payoff. Yeah, Sadly, we we're not nothing. getting paid. We have but to pay in terms to of our spirit, we've sold out to the corporation. We just want people to listen to us. We need friends. <laughs> we, we, need friends and we need friends. We need attention. All right. Now, we grew up in the sprawling suburbs of Western Sydney and spent all of our time watching movies. Boys, now's the time I'd like to remind you of that very special day way back in 1989 where I bumped into both of you at the Henry Lawson Cinema, the twin cinema in in Penrith, and I was going in to see Last Crusade. And I said to you, did you just see Last Crusade? And you two went, no, we just saw Back to the Future 2. You remember this? amazing? That was such an exciting time. massively iconic movies because Herschel and I had been waiting for Back to the Future 2 for ages. You know, because that movie was such an event for people. You know, and so Last Crusade and Back to the Future 2 were the big blockbusters that you were going to see. I think Crusade must have come out that weekend, and I was going then. And, yeah. Or, and Back to the Future was the one that came out that weekend. I didn't see it till the following week at Blacktown. Okay. Greater Union. How, bi- how big is that, though? Can you imagine now? Like, what, what would be equivalent to having 
Last Crusade at the movies, yeah, and Back to the Future two, two movies that we were waiting yeah. on for. I don't know, yeah, what, a couple of years. I don't or know, maybe but, for yeah. another generation. It's Indy Five and Mission Impossible Seven. But that's what it is. I, right? That's why we're oh, that's why we're here tonight. But are we nostalgia nerds? Like, is it actually Avengers coming out at the same time as a Nolan film? You know, is it Barbie versus? Well, don't forget number? those movies make more money. Okay, so yeah. if we go yeah. on the number of people that sit on seats to go and watch these movies. It's actually dwarfing what we came through with Back to the Future and with Indiana Jones. Even take yeah. inflation, all that sort of thing. It beats what we have with those movies. So maybe that's what that's what it is now. Yeah, but the one thing you do have to acknowledge, though, is that the concept of a franchise then for us, say Back to the Future or Indy, mm. was really different to what a franchise represents now for even most viewers across the spectrum, like kids, teenagers or adults, because a franchise... I mean, I, this is nothing controversial. A franchise is massive commercial property. And I think it's massively integrated into industry. With Back to the Future and Indiana Jones were first and foremost movie franchise. They were about the movies mm-hmm. coming out. So I think Marvel is, in my opinion, a completely different experience to say Back to the Future 2 or Back to the Future 3. It's I don't think it's just nostalgia. I don't think Marvel is going to attract the kind of nostalgia that these movies could. You come up with Marvel 2032 or something like that, whatever that movie is, you're not going to look back fondly and go, oh, the days of Iron Man. and all. It's a different type of – it's soulless compared to what wow. – I, mean, I mean, I would agree. Now, let's not offend all of our <laughs> listeners, <laughs> our Marvel <laughs> listeners, because we've talked we about Marvel. our um, first season. Yes. I mean, our second season. And the first episode, we've decided it's going to be a Marvel film versus a, a very independent film. That's our new season coming yeah. up. That's a little sneak peek there. <laughs> but what we're here to talk about is Indiana Jones and Mission Impossible. Yeah. I know we're going to get into them. But for us as kids in the 80s, how important was Indiana Jones? Indiana Jones, for me, was an absolute game changer in terms of movies. So I don't know if you guys remember, but I got a I got an, an ad through, I think, my news feed. And Steam had made... Indiana Jones, um, you know, the, the, the game? Remember yeah. the Indiana mm. Jones yes. game that came out? Uh, they brought it down to like 99 cents or something like that. <laughs> we used to play that, yeah. right? Now, I can, I can, you just saying ad like that reminds me of Pitfall. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. like on Atari 2600. Some immediately think of Atari because the Indiana Jones Raiders game was a big event on Atari. But also the thing is, and I, I mentioned this in my intro to the film, but we're going to – there were so many um, replicants – or, or, or version, sorry, yeah. of, of, of it. Like I think of, when I think of India, I think of how much my mum loved uh, Alan Quartermain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, the Richard Chamberlain Richard version. Chamberlain and then version. if you go with the, something like The Mummy, Brendan Fraser, yeah. ironically mm. his name came out of the well-worn best actor. Yes. But if you go back to Brendan Fraser, that movie, on you know, it wore its <laughs> heart in its sleeve and it unabashedly, unashamedly said, yeah. we're going to do Indiana Jones. And they did it kind of okay. Like, I mean, that's a fun and, but movie. But the thing we have to remember is that people like Spielberg and Lucas were also doing their own film histories, right? Yes. They yeah, were doing true, the serial. True. They were doing the adventure movies. Um, one of the things that's very interesting is you had the best filmmakers coming to do an Indiana Jones in 1981 or whatever it was. That's special. I think, and I think even Lu- Marvel is not employing the best And even people. for Lucas <laughs> in terms of his writing, wow. I, think yeah. it's, I think he's at the peak of his powers. I mean, he comes through... If you go to American Graffiti, some of the, the sentiments, the emotions in American Graffiti are going to carry through yep. 
But then you put it in the greatest adventure of all time. So like, yeah. crazy success. But also, the genre was rebranded after indie. Yep. It, adventure became Adventures on Earth yeah. and, and not so much mystical. Like uh, th- before that, it was always fantasy. You think of Ray Harryhausen, you think of yep. science fiction crossovers. Hey, that just reminds me of something. Didn't Wasn't there a byline in the trailers where it says Adventure has a new name and it's Indiana Jones? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was like, a line like that. Well, I think indie invented the modern adventure movie mm. that the three of us grew up with. Before, If you go back to say 70s, adventure wasn't a big deal because that was the era of the new Hollywood and a lot of sort of art house and the studios were doing their best just to keep up. Spielberg and Lucas make it possible to say, we're going to reinvent the genre, you know, whether it's sci-fi or it's um, adventure movies or action movies, we're going to make it completely different for a huge demographic and it's going to make a killing. And we grew up on that. Like I don't, Marvel cornered its own market in a different way, but I refuse to believe that that is a continuation of that earlier kind of franchise movie. I think it's a massive rupture from But I just wanted to point it out to our listeners that this is, and to you guys, this is the first time that we've done films for this podcast where the three of us have sat in the cinema together for both films. Yes. Like we've accidentally, as children, grown up watching some of the films we've done reference or we've gone and, and done, but this is both films all three of us travelled in a car together from Maryfield <laughs> to the cinema to watch both, and that was the best fun. It was, Do you remember? It, it was like going to the movies yeah. as kids. And I can't remember if it was you, Craig. I think we were driving back from mm. Dial of Destiny. You said something like, can you believe the three of us are sitting in a car driving back from the movies <laughs> and we're like in our mid-40s? But also in a Datsun. In like a Datsun. A, you know, Craig, old... Craig used to, in fact, check out Life in a Datsun, Craig's. <laughs> Famous <laughs> short film Classic that went stuff. wild. Hey, is that on YouTube? Mm-hmm. Oh, check mm-hmm. out Life in a Dats on YouTube. I still think it's one of the great short films. I just want to say to our audience as well <laughs> that um, if you get to the final scene in Life in a Dats and the car pulls away yes. at the end um, and Bruce and I are in the driver and you, passenger yeah, seat yeah. of the car. We're the so car thieves. Actually, the most important roles, although you can't see our face or our bodies, probably the most important role in the <laughs> that movie. That was so fun. You two came in and my dad and my mm. brother also came to what Penrith Plaza. Your dad tried to turn into like Marlon Brando. Yeah. He was like, so, it was almost ad-libbing. It was, <laughs> it was so, your dad was so funny. Because I, I just remember me in a charming way, he would start saying lines, but they weren't properly script. Mm. And you go, cut. Dad, what are you doing? <laughs> like the lines, because yeah. I love you. Your dad's such a beautiful guy. He loves the improv, yeah. I tell you that. <laughs> well, we're happy to have gone and seen them. And I hope you've seen them too, because today's episode is going to be full of spoilers for both of these films. If other films pop up, probably movies in the franchise, we might end up spoiling those because it's kind of inevitable, you know. But um, if any other random films pop up, we will definitely try not to spoil them. But uh, if you haven't seen those two movies... Now's the time because they're still in cinema, both of them, which is so strange for our podcast because normally we're doing... Yeah. First time we've ever done this. Yeah. So you can actually... Um, a lot of uh, feedback from some folks that said, okay, like, uh, can the movies be more accessible and streaming services, something like this. These ones, not only are they accessible, but mm. they're making they're going to make a ton of money, so yeah. they're all but over the place. We'll be taught a lesson when the numbers don't change. <laughs> 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 all right, let's get into it. Take one. First up on today's show, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. After the success of Star Wars, Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas teamed up to create an action-adventure hero named Indiana Jones, played by Han Solo himself, Harrison Ford. During the 1980s, there were three very successful movies that spawned hundreds of imitations during the home video era. 
Then, in 2008, a fairly poorly received fourth film was added to the saga and also directed by Steven Spielberg. But in 2023, a new director took over the mantle of directing the series. James Mangold, whose previous films include Walk the Line, Ford vs. Ferrari, Girl Interrupted, and some action films like Wolverine and Logan, he took over and directed this new film, Dial of Destiny. The story opens during the end of World War II and follows Indy rescuing half of a magical dial from the Nazis. 30 years later and an aged Indiana Jones has left adventuring far behind him and is now retiring from his career as an academic. He is hunted down by his goddaughter, played by co-writer and comedic genius Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who accidentally enlists Indy into one last adventure. The team goes head-to-head with the forthright Nazi Dr. Voller, played by Mads Mikkelsen, <laughs> as they race to find the Dial of Destiny and unlock its time-travelling potential. The film features cameos from series regular Sala and, spoiler alert, Marion at the very end, but there was no sign of the Oscar winner short round. <laughs> With a running time of 2 hours and 34 minutes, a huge budget and a marketing cost beyond belief, it has only managed to take in around $300 million worldwide and is now considered a box office bomb. Herschel, talk to us now about Dial of Destiny. All right. You both know how excited I was about this movie. I'm not talking about two weeks before going to see it or two weeks before premiere or when it came to Cannes and, and you know, people said lukewarm reception. I'm talking mm. when we heard that yeah. the movie was going to get made. Actually, can I just say, whenever I go to Herschel's place, he go, oh, let's check out the trailer. <laughs> and, so he put, and he'd go, hey, can you know some new trailer I know. for Indy? And, and he'd put it on and I'd go. Wait, we were getting WhatsApp notes, notifications yeah, about, the, tra- about the new trailer. That's I, different. And, I was following and I'd keep thing. writing... These trailers are not. Good. Remember, I'd send those messages and I go, "Are we talking about time travel, or what are we talking about here?" So, uh, look, I was—I couldn't have been more excited. Therefore, after having seen the movie, um, the first thing I'll say is I slept through about maybe eight minutes of it. Because we, did you? Yeah, I did. I did. I, I fell asleep. Did I fall asleep? Does anyone remember? I didn't sleep. Like I stayed all the way through. Okay. But I didn't. I didn't know you were sleeping. No, but here's the thing. I wasn't sleeping. You also dozed off in Mission Impossible. Yeah. Well, we're coming to oh, Mission Impossible. This is an unreliable. We're, we're coming judgment. to Mission Impossible. You can't trust the bloody <laughs> what you say. I guess my take on it is is I'm going to be quite short on this because it's more about the conversation. Yeah. So I'm going to be really direct. Mm-hmm. All right. I think Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of the greatest adventures of all time. Mm-hmm. I think Temple of Doom is massively underrated. You go back to it, and there's some there's real magic in a hell of a lot of that movie. It might be you know, issues of the, you know, it's dated a little bit in places or quite a lot in places. Uh, it's very dark in some places and Spielberg says he regrets that. It's still a hell of a yeah. movie. Last Crusade, I was thinking about it even today, like in prep for this, and I was thinking, is that is that possibly the best third movie of all time, like in a, in a trilogy mm. or in a franchise? That's how good this stuff was, right? Mm. When I came out of this, um, I think it tried incredibly hard to capture the magic of those first three movies, mm-hmm. but in limiting itself to that template, it gave it no opportunity to become something individual, and it it, it falls more in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which is something that wow. I thought was absolutely but awful. See, I think it falls more in that because if you if you take into account expectations and stuff like that, and thinking is this going to be Last Crusade? Is it going to be really great? Mm. I it never got there for me. I've seen it a second time now. I think it's quite a bit better than Crystal Skull. I actually think it's yeah, quite yeah. a bit better. But, man, did this disappoint because I had my heart set on this. 
and and it really why did you get so excited because for me this captured a period of filmmaking and in our relationship in what we thought about movies that is fictitious. It's kind of like when you go, oh, who killed JFK? Mm. It's that mythology. They, you yeah, don't know. There's, I think there's you're no answer it's like to cinema it. as a, 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 the mythology that all of us share. Exactly. It's something we shared. And, and this, but, aside but, from okay, a couple of months. Can I tell you, just in your comparison of those films, like I think of Crystal Skull as the prequels to Star Wars. Crazy new mm. technology making things even weirder, and the guy in charge is still the guy in charge making nonsense. Yeah. And then this reminds me a lot of that number seven, Force Awakens, where it's like, okay, a reinterpretation that's kind of just the model that's shifted to a new. Okay, look, that's, that's interesting, but Dial of Destiny, Aliens, Crystal Sky, is it, is it really that dude? Archimedes <laughs> coming out with his time travel no, machine? But, but, okay. but I it's mean, Bill and Ted's excellent yeah, adventure phone box right here. <laughs> but there have always been supernatural elements in these movies. No, but, in fact, I, that's what but I don't want to go into really that too much because yeah. that's actually something that I do want to touch on. I think that's... In mise-en-scene. Not so much, oh, but okay. in, and I call, we're going to come to that in a second, okay. but keep that in mind because but I think I, that's a key I, point. My response is... I can't remember the movie finished. We were all sitting there, mm. we got up, and I remember saying to Herschel... Wow, that is just such a lifeless movie. Mm. And what I was meaning by that was there's nothing particularly wrong with it. Like it's reasonably pleasant, but there's no spark in it. Okay, right? I've got a there, phrase there here. Literally, a moment of any spark on my document in, in front of me on my laptop, it says there's no spark to the story. Yeah, I actually watched Last Crusade. Um, I don't know, six weeks ago, something like that. Some of the stuff in the Harrison Ford, um, Sean Connery. It's not just that they're very good actors, but the relationship that's built mm. between them, the chemistry, the rapport yep. between them, the comedy, the humor. And that's also a lot to do with directing, right? That that's there's no space in Dial of Destiny for any of the relationships to work very well. I mean, they're moving I from yeah, set piece. But to I'm not going to say that's James Mangold's fault. I think that's unfair. I think that's like a studio forcing. A oh, I mean, it's possible. So someone. I don't know exactly how the, the, the production structure worked in this, right? But the speed at which it goes from prologue to meeting Indy um, to straight away into the action, that really doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. And the characters are sort of poorly fleshed out. Um, the other thing I do want to say is, how did you guys feel when you encounter Indy, mm. who's not only old... But he's, but he's now a raging alcoholic. Well, yeah, and, and he's, he's sort of... Look, th- there's, a major, there's a major comparison that takes place. Like, there's a lot of scholarship on this that looks at Hollywood. Like, remember when we did the conversation and we talked about Harry Cole as being a guy that has no purpose? Mm-hmm. He's just the guy sitting around in his apartment, right? When we meet Harrison Ford, it's like he's been sent into the mid-'70s. He's drinking. He teaches now. I don't know if you guys notice this, but he teaches at a kind of afterthought of a college when clearly in, I don't know, I can't remember Crystal Skull, but in Last Crusade, Last he's Crusade, obviously yeah. at Columbia yeah. or he's at New York, yeah, right? but Bruce, it's So a, it's this guy's at an Ivy League school. He's one of the greatest archaeologists in the whole world. Bruce, I don't want to jump the gun here, but later on we find out a, in a very uh, horrible, sad moment on a boat that his son has died in yes, war. Yes, his life so, has been so destroyed. So maybe that's what's caused this... No, no, of course, no. But right. what I'm saying is if... You, the original Indiana Jones as a character was a swashbuckling hero in the mythology of adventure movies in Hollywood. Mm. I'm saying what they've made this indie is a forlorn, grieving father. No, now, I've got nothing against yeah, that. But years I'm just where, saying, wow, you're really going to change the tone of this movie. But years where Mangold, I think, missed, did Mangold write the, the, the screenplay for this? I don't think so. Give me a second. Okay, but years where they missed the trick here because first introduction to, to the old Indiana Jones after the de-aging process, which I'm sure we're going to touch yeah. on later, but that's my favorite part of the movie. 
Because I, I think that's where Harrison Ford is at his very best. He embodies a person who's been so hurt, has lost mm. Marion, has lost his son. And I think Harrison Ford is as good in those scenes as he is in any Indiana Jones. The problem, though, is if you set him up like that, you got to choose what you want to be. Well, that's right? exactly what it's I was going to say. Either you're nostalgic. I no problem with that. But where do you take it from? Oh, I'm there? sorry, James Mangold is listed as the fourth writer. Okay, I mean, I, I thought that he was involved in the in the, in the writing process. Okay. You know what now, they say when there's three writers in a movie, it's like there's trouble. But look, there's, there's four a, writers. In there's a an movie. issue here. They reference the early Indies all the time. Do you guys? Did you note down? So you've got the train at the start. So you've yeah. got the train. Yeah. Okay, you've got Tangiers, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. Yeah. The train's obviously Last Crusade. You've got Temple of Doom with the kid. You've got uh, Teddy, who I think is pretty good in this movie. That little kid, um, aside from the fact that yeah, he murders someone. Short well, he becomes a murderer later on in the movie. We'll talk. <laughs> we'll talk about that. Um, you've got the Temple of Doom creepy crawlies where yeah. it comes out in the. In but there's, in all of them, there's creepy crawlies. So there's yeah. nostalgia, but it's done so terribly in Dial of Destiny. But, what about in Dial of Destiny? You wouldn't believe it, but he wears a hat. Because there is like 50 shots of a hat in this movie. Oh, Indy, you mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Even at the end, they have to do a Looney Tunes ending onto the hat. Okay, what about the characterization? Let's move from the nostalgia. We've talked a bit about that. If you want to try and capture the nostalgia, which is probably one of the great mythologies in franchise history, I think you're going to have to have done a bit better than this. And that's why I don't think this Mm. thing's resonated. Even with the Khan people, they were going, you know, lukewarm reception. Well, but this is why the film's tanking is because they released it in Khan expecting all the critics of the Khan circuit to say this is amazing. But I don't think the word of mouth would have been good. No, it was terrible. So they responded knowing Mm. their release date was two months after. Who came up with? Firstly, who who budgeted the movie at two hundred ninety five million? That's that's. <laughs> a f- I want to know who greenlit this movie. Okay. Okay. Now I think I want to go into the characters <laughs> for a second, really fast. Okay. Indy's goddaughter and Phoebe Waller. What Phoebe Waller? Bridge. Bridge. Okay. PWB to her friends. Okay. Phoebe, <laughs> she's amazing in a bunch of things. She's amazing in Fleabag. Unbelievable, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Why would you create a character who's going to be your kind of a central person in the book? But what's her moral compass? They spend 80% of the movie saying that she's only interested in money and Indy's been fighting against that, belongs in a museum, been fighting against grave robbery and everything like that. And when do they try to resurrect the character? In not the final act, like the final tenth of the movie where he goes, you know, people interested, people who maintain diaries are not just after the money. It's too late to resurrect the character at that point. Her, her, her complex motivations become less than complex. They become kind of trite. Yeah. And they become, to me... It's it's a little bit wow. like um, Alison Doody out of Last Crusade, who for me is her. She's great for the second half of the movie, but those in those initial motivations, I don't think really work. That's the only thing for Last Crusade that I don't like as much. Um, secondary character, the CIA guys. The, <laughs> that yeah, um, no Boyd sense. Holbrook, who's a great actor, like he's catching on like wildfire. Mm. He's got a really strange role in this. Yeah. I, I'm, 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 it's, yeah, yeah, obviously, you want to sign on to Indiana Jones, but it's a weird one. It's a weird, lifeless character. Well, I love I Matt. I did like Matt how Bigginson. they did the '60s and how like the civil rights comes in, mm-hmm. and you've got the black CIA agent, the woman. Firstly, killing her was the biggest mistake that movie made because mm. once they take her out, you lose like this energy that she brought to the but, movie. Yeah, but, but I also. I was a little confused by the racial politics. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that scene, ha- the, the scene preceding her entrance is the, the, the um, black uh, butler that comes into the hotel room. Oh, yes. And then he's quizzed and, yeah. it, and it's kind of semi-revealed this guy's at least right wing, but then yeah. it turns out he's a he's Nazi, a Nazi yeah. right? But then next minute, 
the whole team's working with a black CIA. It made no sense. And she's calling the shots and she's fed up with them and she's angry. And I'm like, what is the, I'm not sure what. And, and I can are. work out who yeah. was CIA, who was Matt Mickelson, who, yeah. who were the yeah. contractors. We then worked it out. We, we, the three of us talked yeah. after the movie to yeah. try and work that but out. But there's a right. reference at one point to like, there was a military extraction yes. because he was working for the CIA and he's working mm. for the, so the, like the a, president. What do you call it? Like, project yeah, paperclip like, type. What is all of this confusion? Yeah. So the movie, I only felt really emotional, like welling up in me, like a kind of, this is like a teary kind of a wonderful theme. When Sala goes, give him hell, Indiana Jones, and then Harrison Ford and Lee gets run over. Now, I think that's a turning point in the movie. You put Salah in this movie, and I don't know what, why. Well, real Craig was saying this. Uh, you were saying if they could have put Salah in, why would you put him in the movie? Well, but what? No, put him in as the um, Antonio Banderas character. Yeah, like, no, I a mean, useful, give him a proper role. Yeah, give him role. a proper role. This was like a horrible. Remember, you made fun of it, Bruce, because he's an Egyptian cab driver in well, New I York. Well, I couldn't believe that they made Salah an Egyptian cab yeah, driver yeah, in New York. Yeah. This is like one of the worst cliches. No, no, it's it's I'm the not saying that there are no Egyptian cab drivers in New York, but all I'm saying is this is like a cliche that that is not pleasant. But it's, it's inexplicable. A fall from it, you can't understand yeah. what is going on. And every time John Rhys Davis is on the screen, it, it links you to the past. Yeah. See, so they were after nostalgia, okay, with the train rides and everything like that, and you bring in Marion. Okay, that's the next point. But <laughs> if they were after the nostalgia, why the hell do you bring Salah in mm, for 15 seconds and he dominates the screen with the memory of what Salah yeah. and India have been through in Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, <clears> Last <throat> Crusade, but then he goes, give him hell, Indiana Jones. And he, what? What about this? <laughs> Salah goes, Indy, I've packed my passport. I'm ready to go with you. And <laughs> I felt what? so sorry for him. The no, but so, I mean, he's so desperate he's to so, go he, on this adventure. He wants to go on the adventure and they decide to, what is it? Are they wetting our appetite? He could have been in the movie, but <laughs> yeah. we're not going to let yeah. you see him. But why What's not that let him about? go? That's what the audience wants as yeah. well. I don't know why. Well, I'm going to say, I was so shocked when Harrison Ford, because I thought he was going to go, Oh, come on, son, let's go. Yeah, yeah. But when he said, no, 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 you go home to your family, I just thought, oh, that's a shock for me. <laughs> so you've traded you know, Salah, who has yeah. no ambivalence around his moral yeah. you know, obligations and, 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 and where he stands. You hook up in Tangiers, the, the goddaughter character, and then we meet Teddy. These people are like soulless, and they're trading artifacts to Matt Mickelson's and whoever. And, uh, okay, I don't even want to go into this. I had in my notes here, like the the step, the the, what, the, um, the ex-husband uh, of Phoebe Waller. Oh, that uh, scene that's is weird. What's so that outland. about? The, the, the mobster. Oh, that's right. That she's so married that she's to apparently married out of and I mean, the whole idea know. that she's this raging capitalist who's just running a, an organization of ripping people off, Makes no sense whatsoever, and they certainly don't develop it. You know, in terms of, as you say, the capitalist versus the, you know, the protector of history kind of thing, which is apparently Indiana Jones. Her character to me makes no sense. It's clear that what they've done is they've tried to take Phoebe Waller Bridge from Fleabag and put the Fleabag character into Indiana Jones so that you can grab a certain but audience. But she's, she's actually, she's got to be one of the most charismatic leading people in movies. Like, she's awesome, mm, right? Yeah. She's just awesome. <clears throat> but I, I've seen it twice now. So I looked at the action scenes. They are really sharp. Like, on the tuk-tuks through the streets and mm -hmm. that, it's absolutely exhilarating. Yeah it's, yeah, it's exhilarating, but it's so obvious, you know? But I want to talk about the ending. Okay, the, okay, for anybody who hasn't seen it, as soon as we start talking about this ending, that's going to that's gonna change the entire tone of the film. Okay, so... Indiana Jones, well, Dial a, of Destiny. There's a big build-up, right? Like, they oh, go, they kind of go. But yeah, okay, that's the other thing. Okay, but also, maybe he's grieving, and he hasn't been able to work through his son's death. 
So the character arc oh, in this movie... Oh, I didn't movie, even put that nonsense together. <laughs> no, so the major character arc of this movie is find the Dial of Destiny, but the kind of finding the Dial of Destiny is also India having to work through but the Dial of Destiny, his own grieving. But Bruce, the Dial of Destiny doesn't reach the heights of the Holy Grail because no, the Holy Grail is backed by a whole, di- like a whole lot of mythology and MacGuffins yeah. in Last Crusade. So you got... Henry Jones Jr.'s diary. He's been working on that his whole life. What's the other dude got? He's got a few pieces of scrolling. No, no, he's got no, diaries he's, too. But the diary wasn't as big a deal. No, Remember when Indy in Last Crusade, he goes, you want us to go back into the heart of, 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 of you know, Berlin or whatever mm. it is. He goes, the diary's got more in it than that. I, mean, I think what you're saying, which I totally agree with, is um, Indy 1, 2, and 3 have a much stronger connection to textual history. Then okay. four and five. Just just pick mm-hmm. up like on that. where there's actual text, like there's inscriptions. You know, and I love in Last Crusade when uh, they've got the the hand, the over the shoulder shot of, of Sean Connery's hand, but you don't know Sean Connery yet. Mm. And he says he, he's, he's right. He's drawing the window in his diary, and he says, "Let he who he illuminated this illuminate me." me. Exactly. Right. Mm. So there's such a connection to classical textual history or like when Henry Jones Jr. Sean Connery again says you know suddenly I remembered my Charlemagne let my armies be the birds in the sky it's like these guys are quoting history and text all the time and And um, I think four and five it's like I just want to go a step further on that I want to go a step further let's look at what the MacGuffins are in the movies right you got the Ark of the Covenant you don't really get bigger than that All right, you got um, non-Christian religion yeah right Temple of Doom which I love worship ritualistic um, all massive. Last Crusade, um, the Holy Grail. Now, what I read um, in the piece about the MacGuffin versus the aliens and the Crystal Skull and mm-hmm. the Archimedes Dial, they don't have like the gravitas of the first three. Like you're talking about culture creating concepts. Yeah. We well, you know it does it better. Nas- national treasure yeah. for its use of textual. I MacGuffin. completely yeah. agree with that. Yeah. So, what what did national treasure do? They linked it to formative documents. Yeah. In the history of democracy, what Indiana Jones again, did again calling into account that American mythology, right? And that's what Dial of Destiny and Crystal Skull—they skull, don't manage to call up that history. You can go, "Whoa, that's part of me. That's part of this this global culture we we have." But Archimedes and the Dial of Destiny—I got a couple of problems with that. There's no such thing as a Dial of Destiny, even in mythology or something. It was invented by somebody sitting around a table, like we're sitting here currently, and they go, oh, let's do Archimedes and make a Dial of Destiny. Okay, and guess so, what? Im- that's the, so immediately that's the first artifact of the whole franchise that's just some idiot making something mm-hmm. up. No, no, Crystal Skull, though, like, you know, like aliens. No, but, I mean, aliens actually have a, like, you know, we have a background Roswell, or Roswell. We have all, you know, there's actually... The, the artifacts that people are, will, will register. But the Dial of Destiny is just something made up in a script. Like, if I be honest, I'll tell you what I thought this was about when the stills came out and they were shown in the 1960s. That 1960s uh, ticket tape parade, that yeah. sort of thing, we liken that all to, you know, the, the JFK Camelot days, we, the, the moon landing and stuff yeah. like that. I thought they were going to set this entire movie in that era. And what they were going to talk about was... Is it an alternative kind of destiny or, you know, JFK doesn't get assassinated? What I thought it was going to oh, be. That would have been so much that's better. That's actually better. But that would have so, been so, so much better. So I was better. thinking that's where they were going. Who dreamt up a completely fig- – and here's the thing with Archimedes. Okay, no disrespect to Archimedes, but really, is, nah. he, is he up there with the, with the, with the, with the doyens? Of, also, you know, you got into the bathtub out, eureka. The ba- that's all I remember, the bathtub eureka moment. Well, when we came out, I remember saying um, the problem I had, a huge problem I had with the film – 
um, was he kept reminding me of um, Socrates out of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> so every time he was on screen, I was thinking, this is so Well, look stupid. what they've traded. They've got Socrates. Yeah. Um, okay, so they've got the Dial of Destiny with Archimedes, right? Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure from a few decades ago. They've got the telephone booth yeah. with Socrates. Yeah. It's basically the same thing. <laughs> they, what these guys have done is they lost, I think they lost sight of what Indiana Jones was, which is what Crystal Skull did. Yeah. Like Kate Blanchett and Crystal Skull is one of the weirdest things I've ever seen oh, in my life. Yeah. So they lost four and five have almost got nothing to do with one and two, in yeah. my opinion. And three. And three, sorry. One, two, and three. Yeah. So, look, disappointment, especially from a person who desperately wanted to love this movie, yeah. he ended up not liking it. Well, I wonder if you went in too hard. I enjoyed it. I, you know, I didn't care. I probably... But I cared too much. People I cared have asked me a lot. if I should, they should see it. And I go, I don't mind. You know, maybe if you like that. I said, mm. I don't even know how to say it. Well, Craig, i got to say, I went in not expecting a lot. Yeah. And I got less than I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you explain that? There goes your theory. <laughs> All right, then, let's move on. Take two. Our next film is Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. After a long-running TV series that began in the 1960s, the mid-90s saw alter and subject of a book by our very own Bruce Isaacs. Thank you, Craig. Brian De Palma. What's your book called again? The Art of Pure Cinema, Hitchcock and His Imitators, and I do some uh, nifty stuff with Mission Impossible. Wow. Um, Brian De Palma was the director of that, and he joined with Tom Cruise to make a film about the show Mission Impossible. Since then, six more films have been released, culminating in Dead Reckoning Part 1, directed by Christopher McQuarrie, who also directed the last two very successful both financially and critical, uh, critically films. This story sees Tom Cruise's character Ethan Hunt join with his team from IMF to take on a computer AI virus <laughs> that has the potential to destroy and control the world. Oh, man, I had so much trouble writing this and going, what? Okay, the AI, the AI is already operating in the physical world and is doing everything it can to outsmart the team. After a series of exciting action set pieces that are mostly grounded in the real world, the film ends with a title card that says it will be continued in part two. The film is doing similar numbers to Indiana Jones at the box office, but is not considered a flop as far as I know, and at the time of recording has only been released in America for about a week. Yeah. So time will tell as to how this performs. Bruce, what's your take on this film and where it sits amongst its franchise? Yeah, thank you, Craig. I like that you finished then on the question of box office, because mm. I think we need to come to terms with what these movies are going to do in terms of the business, um, how much are they going to make, and what does that say about the industry? So that's something I've got to say I foregrounded in my thinking on this movie. So, yes, the Brian De Palma Mission Impossible is just such a masterpiece. It's such an incredible film. And it redefined an entire genre that would be ripped off again and again mm -hmm. and again through the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, so there, Herschel Craig and I were sitting again reclined <laughs> in a huge multiplex I had anticipated this movie more than Indiana Jones, and I couldn't have been more disappointed. Oh. Man, I... Okay, so what I've written in my notes is, this is the most <laughs> uneven and simply messy MI film in the franchise. And I'll stand by this. Even John Woo's second film, right? <laughs> Which if people recall... MI2 is, is better than MI7. See, but the question, the question of artistic value is a complicated one, right? So when I watch movies, I'm not necessarily looking for things to be 
perfectly harmonious or, 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 or clear in its intentions. <laughs> Can I say that I think there are more interesting sequences in number two? Like, I mean, John Woo is such a distinctive filmmaker. So I still got off on things like, oh, that's where he's doing a better tomorrow. That's where he's doing the killer. Yeah, but what about that ridiculous does, slow motion what, what, of, of Tom Cruise's jacket whenever he comes yeah. out of a yeah, room. Yeah, but what about when he's on know? the motorbike and he goes onto the front wheel? <laughs> hey, but like, that, he yeah, doesn't yeah, do yeah, a wheelie, that, he goes yeah, on the front wheel. But that's John Woo, right? Um, now, I've seen number two several times. Just for our audience yeah. who might not be aware, the, 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 the franchise has had some amazing directors, right? Well, that's, they've always landed good directors. This like, is the so crazy thing. So we started thing. with Brian De Palma. So De Palma, yeah. and it's important for people to understand who Brian De Palma is. Brian De Palma is the guy that Steven Spielberg and George Lucas wanted to be. They thought De Palma was the guy who really produced art house movies and that they were mainstream. Mm. So you De Palma's tracking along doing these movies that don't make anywhere near as much money, but they established like, such a distinctive vision. And these days, if you talk to cinephiles or you know, um, film scholars, they always go back to De Palma because this guy was reinventing movies as he went along. And just just give the, the audience a couple of movies from De Palma okay, that so, they're going to recognize. Body Double. So body, you know. like classic era, Dress to Kill, I think is the best one. Uh, yeah. Dress to Kill is just amazing. Um, Body Double was a huge one. Carrie for our horror Carrie fans. for yeah, the horror fantastic. people. Yeah. You can watch any of these. And he also did the big mainstream stuff like uh, Mission Impossible. Oh, blow, um, so I just want to shout out to Blowout as well. Oh, Blowout. And then Nancy Travis. Travis fantastic fantastic film, which was his version of the conspiracy paranoia mm. movie. Great so this movie. guy makes... You know, he goes to a Wait, period. He, who made Scarface? Is that him? That's the Palmer Palmer as well. well. Yeah, right. No, no. So, like so that's famous for action. It's very famous, but he doesn't have that posters. career that his buddies, because he shared a house with Spielberg for like for several years, mm. right? When they first moved out to LA to become filmmakers, so all these people knew each other. The Palmer was quickly in his own head the sort of the next Hitchcock. He wanted to be the great filmmaker, I think that's, it's the worth, great film stylist. It's, it's worth just emphasizing that because he he absolutely loves Hitchcock. Yes, like you'll see Hitchcock in everything he does. In everything he does. You can all see right, Hitchcock right. easily in Mission yeah, Impossible in regards 1. To, yeah, so Mission Impossible 1, yes. we've got all the famous sequences. Tom Cruise lowering from lowering, the roof. So the CIA slipping, break in, yeah. the, the, um, you've got the Prague sequence at the opening. Yeah. Right? You've got the train sequence. Remember the train at the end? The yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. So all of these became like synonymous with action cinema and with the Mission Impossible franchise. Right, and, but then Tom Cruise gets <laughs> John Woo for number two. Number two, and John Woo, remember, has just done Hard Target in America. It's huge. Yeah. He's also, so the Had great he done auteur. Face Off by them? No, no, no. Face Off okay, comes after, right? After. So he's a great auteur. Hong Kong action cinema, right? Hong Kong action cinema. Because he did Hard to Kill. Hard Target. Hard Target. But he's also got a very unique look. Like No, the killer. He's always got a guy with two guns in slow motion, pigeons flying. Yeah, so you'll see Tom Cruise like kind of walking into a room and it's like a whoosh. <laughs> and his jacket just it's, now that it's kind of like bullet time before bullet time. Said, yeah, yeah. Now I should say to listeners, if you don't know John Woo, Mission Impossible Two is the dumbest film ever made. <laughs> but if you know John Woo, you know it's where fun. they're at. Yeah. I don't know why Tom Cruise and what's it, Paula Wagner employ John Woo. I got no idea why. But the other thing is, if you don't know John him. Woo, you can do a hell of a lot worse than just watching all of John Woo this weekend because <laughs> yeah. you will have oh, so yeah. much fun. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. No, so, so I guess what I'm saying is... Oh, well, can tell me number three. Who's directing Number three, uh, just J Jim Abrams? JJ. That's JJ. 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 Yeah. Now, I watched three? number three about two weeks ago. Two weeks, a week before we yeah. went to watch the movie. Which is I watched, good. And it's got Philip Seymour Hoffman. Now, Philip Seymour Hoffman 
I didn't realize how good that performance yeah, it's just was. Amazing. Yeah. It's one of the creepiest And his villains. level of psychopathic mania mm. is probably ahead of anyone else in the whole franchise, right? Number four, we go to That's Brad Ghost, Bird. Is that Ghost Protocol? Yeah, yeah. Ghost Protocol. Which I think Brad, Brad Bird, Bird who's, who's coming off of things like The Incredibles. He's an animation some, director, yeah. and he's done so yeah. well with action animation. But again, very and successful. And the money keeps on picking up. Very successful. And then Chris McQuarrie comes in with five and six that are both very highly regarded. And Fallout. Number six is regarded by many people. I don't think so, but I, uh, uh, as the best in the franchise, right? Fallout is considered probably the best action film of a decade yeah, it's amongst very mainstream audiences. I, mean, now, it's I think it's movie. sensational. And we talked about this in our James Bond episode where <laughs> yeah. we think, well, I feel that the Mission Impossible started to do Bond better than yeah, Bond better than ever Bond. could. And also Tom Cruise started to do Bond yeah. but that's uh, in really fascinating ways. As soon as Cruise... Left, left all the, the wackiness behind that action movies used to be, which is what Daniel Craig did. As soon as they started doing the hand-to-hand combat and that, you were yeah. starting to go, these guys are now... And, also, and Jason Bourne, of course, influenced that, right? Hmm. So they're in the same yeah. kind of territory. But the then. more serious emotional content as well, like that you get in a Mission Impossible film, that you don't, you know, you're not going to expect from an 80s action movie. Um, so whatever, okay, so I've written here that unfortunately MI7, though, is such a dysfunctional film. Right, it's messy, it's uneven. You're in your reading, Craig. Yeah. You couldn't even keep a straight face. No, I can't reading the because, plot because it's so stupid. I don't get the. It's like a what do they call it? Machina, the machine, Every few minutes, where they go, yeah. So it's probably just the, the machines in front of them. Like <laughs> well, we were talking, and I was paradox. going to Craig, the the Gabriel guy. He just seems to have... He's, is he best friends you know what, with this? It's like the this Oracle in the Matrix is yeah. now the villain. And we're like, what's going on? Yeah. Because this person I, knows, who cares? It was so mixed up for me, right? So I've written you, um, I think MI7, unlike all of the other six, and this is the key point for me, it's the first one that just for me phones it in. I'm not sure it's, it wasn't written by AI. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a theory when Craig and I were chatting after the movie. I we had a theory that it looks like there's a lot of hands in this movie. Mm. It looks like there's a real powerful producer, Tom Cruise. There's a really powerful star, Tom Cruise. You're Christopher McQuarrie, who's a fairly distinctive and powerful guy in himself. And the formula of Mission Impossible has never been more transparent and in your face than in this movie. Mm. Like at least the other films. Yeah, there's a formula, but you've got interesting bits of, of, of like Alec Baldwin coming in and the interesting tussle between the CIA and the Mission Impossible, you know, force. Mm. In this one, it's just we're going to go so by the numbers on everything and we're going to hope that the action scenes are just big enough that you won't care. But I just want to talk about, I also want to bring in the humor side. That's the thing that was <laughs> oh, dry, yes. doing my head in, right? Yeah. So one thing that I, I still don't get this, I cannot believe actually this. You go to Fallout, you go, number three is completely dark. Okay, number three is genuinely a, like a, a horrible yeah. movie because like, that's dark, right? Number four, Ghost Protocol, um, uh, the, the other Ghost four, Protocol, five, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These movies, there's no kind of Arnold Schwarzenegger in Twins kind of parody, yeah. okay? <laughs> there's no over-the-top crazy. Yeah. What about when he, he gets into the little Gogomobile mm. and he goes, oh, they set, I don't know, they set these cars up differently and that. And... They they almost get into fast. They get into physical. Well, no, I, at one I think point. there's absolute. There's a fast 
subgenre operating throughout this movie but, that is simply yeah. not in yeah. the yeah. But films. where did that come? I, I don't know. I, I, it, where, it who thought that was a good idea? Roger Moore, James Bond. But yeah. also, we could tell, I can tell by us, because we like to stay in the movie. Yes. But I, for some reason, got a large Coke and <laughs> gunned it before the movie started. I don't know what was wrong with me. <laughs> And then I was like, this is the time. This this go-go mobile, well, this I, yellow okay. car I, I remember leaving at some point in the go-go mobile only well, because I was thinking, how long is this going to go on for? Like, I, I am, this is nuts. Yeah, no, but I, like, I went to the toilet four times in the movie <laughs> and then once after the credits. I know, something was happening with you guys going to the no, toilet. Because, I don't know what was going on there. No, if, if a movie has got my utmost attention, yeah. then I'll forget, it. right? Mm. But... When well, that was the classic thing of the head of the studio for The Godfather. His line was, if I have to go to the toilet in a preview, we are in a lot of trouble. Wow. Okay, so you know the opening scene? I love the submarine. For me, that's on for Red October. Like, yes. and it's not original, it was but it was, it was cool. Great sequence. It was cool. So tense. But you know what? I like to yeah. use the vehicle, or, okay, vehicle, but the, the method, the lens of the different locations to consider, you know, where did the movie fail or succeed, right? Yeah. So I like the submarine. From the submarine, we go to Abu Dhabi. Now, there's aspects of Abu Dhabi. I like when Benji goes, when it says, who is most important? He goes, my friends. And he goes, you bastard. Yeah. So humor again, but that humor kind of works because it's but, Benji. But before Abu Dhabi, though, is the rush on the desert location. Oh, man, the which desert. Which I thought was beautifully shot. Well, remember. Yeah, but when he's sitting <laughs> with a horse, when he's like going, yeah. oh, easy, <laughs> easy, that's, easy. That's when I turned over to Bruce. Remember that yeah, moment? Yeah, yeah. And I said... Already better than Indiana Jones. Because yeah, no. <laughs> if, you, if you haven't seen it, there's a moment where it cuts to the desert and Tom Cruise is hiding behind a dune with the horse lying down and he's sort of patting it to keep yeah. it quiet. And the horse <laughs> seems to be deliberately obscuring itself yeah. behind the dune yeah, as well. Yeah, like the horse and Tom But Cruise at the are same hiding. time, is there anything like that in any of the first no, six see, movies? At, at that point, where a horse is. Firstly, how did Tom Cruise train this horse? Okay, come no, on. No, but at that point, I was still excited about the movie. But yeah, I yeah. have to be honest, now in hindsight, when I saw that horse, I was thinking, what are you, nuts? This is crazy. <laughs> um, but then it's overtaken by a fantastic sequence in the, in, in the in, sandstorm. In the sandstorm. It's yeah, beautifully that is shot. The only thing intense. I say about that is, I reckon they shot about a thousand bullets at Cruise, <laughs> and, <laughs> and every single one of them missed him. Okay, that's the only thing I'd say. But that because you're back into commando territory, there with Schwarzenegger staying on an open mm. lawn, and yeah. he just can't be hit. Well, actually, can I say that's a very good point you make, right? Because prior to the '90s, action cinema was not really governed by realism as we take that 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 style, right? Mm. Mission Impossible has prided itself on exactly. degrees of realism. Exactly. But it kind of sacrifices that in large ways in this movie. I think you have to sacrifice because of the plot. The, the, yeah. the very nature of the antagonist, yeah. something that is smarter than the see, writers, I, okay, I don't the movie itself. Why? AI is magic in if this I, movie. No, but yeah, but they chose to make it that way. But if I if I told you that, I oh, I read that, you know who the new... The, so Mission Impossible 7 is actually the heart of the problem is AI. Topical, interesting. Yeah. They could have made that fantastic. Yeah, lots of films but have they, done great work but with as AI. As soon as in the summary, and it's the only thing I don't like in the summary, but as soon as that graphic of the eyeball of the AI came out, I'm thinking, are you like referencing Hal or something like? Yeah, like this. But like, also, like you think of um, Terminator Two, which I remember, yeah. I realized afterwards that's AI, but it can use time travel, so it's not. Messing up the entire environment of the film, but it has it is responsible as the villain of the film, right? Yeah. But in this movie, it's the the villain that, but it controls everything, which seems un, 
unrealistic. Like it well, just the, the problem is if you make AI in control of everything and Tom Cruise constantly banging on about how it knows every step. Yeah, that's it right, because there was a step. moment at the midpoint where it stopped being just I can look at your cameras everywhere, but also I can computate I can, every thought every you choice have. you're making. And it's like, well, because we'll when just Benji watch says, something else. When then. Benji yeah. says we've got access to all of our data, all of yeah. our thoughts, all of our steps. And then, you know what's really stupid? How they all have to go completely analogical because the AI will otherwise find that they'll they'll read us? Yeah. That's like, what are you... And what about the political comment where they go, we had to use um, a a Russian satellite? He goes, oh, yeah, we sunk sunk low for this one, but we had to. Like a Russian satellite. I didn't even hear that. Hayley Atwell, I think she's really cool. I think she's really awesome. But... Now, there's only well, one person who could have agreed with killing Rebecca Ferguson in this movie, and that's Rebecca Ferguson, because you have taken out one of the great characters, yeah. great actresses in mm. the world. So what are we just doing? Is it a substitute? It's like it's but like you're in a basketball game, and the writers have substituted out Rebecca Ferguson yeah. for Hayley Atwell, and she's now become the But it's MI. not just Rebecca Ferguson for Atwell. Rebecca Ferguson brings like a kind of intensity of the relationship between Tom Cruise... The Ethan Edwards and and he's, you know, his relationship to grief, to guilt about his own wife, mm. to his the impossibility of being in a relationship, all that stuff, right? I absolutely love that in the the last few films yeah, with her, it's been fantastic. where they never kiss. I'm like, no, yeah, this is the it's good. It's brilliant. Brilliant. This is they, good they cannot connect. Yeah, because the world is too complex. Have you guys and seen it's a, too Have fragile. you guys seen it in Silo? No, no, I haven't seen that yet. She's brilliant. Now that got that got picked up for second season, and I wonder if that's got something to do with it, but. I but don't know. You, you throw her out and you bring in. Um, r- r- uh, uh, Atwell might be the most wonderful actor, but what you bring in is essentially a lighthearted um, kind of an um, urchin, a thief. Y- yeah, like 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 a, like a mirror, like a mirror image of the Benji type character. But she carries right? some of the emotional scenes and the acting with toward with the Cruz. end a little bit, but it's so forced. But it's, it's just that like I don't know what these characters are. At one point, they're in a Gogo mobile. Hmm. Um, Putting the hands behind each other's heads because they got to try and steer it and everything like that. You got the the the, the villain who comes to uh, uh, like a crowd of vespers and she drives through and gets it like on a top kind of scream that she does when yeah. she goes through the vespers like out mm-hmm. of Golden Eye. What are you guys doing? Oh, Where you mean this, this is Gabriel's? Yeah, Gabriel's uh, like yeah, assassin. Number, number two. Gabriel's assassin. Assassin. There's a sequence in um, another Pierce Brosnan film where Michelle Yao's on the. Um, remember yeah. that yeah, on the yeah. bike with handcuffed the and they have to swap over yeah, the drive. Cool. Like, she, she, no, I mean that's done well. Yeah, that was actually yeah. done well. This is done very poorly, I think. A couple of things I want to say because I'm going to cover some of it in mise en scene, but one of the things I want to say is I. I'm pretty much convinced that this movie doesn't work artistically. I know it's getting decent reviews. It's like 79 on Metacritic. I think a lot of that is the, the mythologizing around Cruise and the making of the film and, and wanting to wanting to say this movie is pretty good. I, I think it's artistically really uneven and weak in the franchise. I also think commercially, as Craig alluded to, it's going to struggle. Indy is tanking and it's probably going to kill a studio. Mission Impossible, I just looked up the budget, $291 million for this movie, right? And that's only part one or part two or of two parts. You have to clear 500 to have broken even because of the marketing budget on this movie, right? So it has to do 500 globally to even become a profit of any kind. So they need a billion to say, hey, this was a really good and You know what the weirdest thing about this whole thing is? I was just going to make a billion dollars. You know what the weirdest thing is? Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, still going great guns, yeah. setting all sorts of records, going to hit a billion and all that sort of thing, right? 
Mission Impossible. I've never seen anything marketed this hard before. Yeah, I mean, okay, I've, I've the never marketing seen is off this planet for this movie. The reason I don't think this is going to catch on is because I don't know who wrote those reviews. Probably AI. It's probably Gabriel's people. <laughs> but it's not. I don't. You can't tell me it's anywhere near ballpark of Fallout. It's got nothing no. to do with De Palma. It's in a different universe from the the, the original. What about the moment in Fallout when they arrive at the medical site, the camp uh, on the, yeah. the Pakistan yeah. border, and he sees his wife for the first time in probably two years, and he can't say who he is mm-hmm. because they have this, you know, there's this unspoken thing of to protect me, you can't say who I am. That, and it's so moving yeah, it's when brilliant. you first when he looks at her. And I gotta say, in that moment, Cruz is amazing, right? Yeah. There's nothing with that kind of emotional intensity in re- remotely in this movie. Even Ilsa's death is done so poorly because it's a ripoff of I, the Prague scene. I think the quick question to ask is why is it not gonna do the level of box office that maybe they wanted? But on this say, budget? we still got to hold down on that. We don't know the no, numbers. We don't yet, know. Right? I wanna say this movie, for me, is a schizophrenic film. It doesn't know what it needs to be. And I think what that tells me is Hollywood in the contemporary era of the action film has no idea what it has to be to make a global success. And I want to add one example. Extraction 2 on <laughs> Netflix op- uh, uh, appeared two weeks ago. It was number one for a while. I looked up the budget on that movie, and even with Chris Hemsworth, it's on a $65 million budget. How are you going to compete with that financial model? Already, the Tom Cruises and the Indiana Jones with Harrison Ford as an 80-year-old feels so of the 80s and the Flash. 90s. Don't forget, this started with the yeah. Flash that tanked horribly at the box office. So, I mean, I think the schizophrenia of something like Mission Impossible tells me they don't know what they have to be to generate cash. All right, then. Well, let's move on to our mise en scene. Mise en scène. Now it's time for our mise en scene, where we zoom into one scene or sequence from the film. Up first, it's Herschel. What have you chosen for us from Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny? Okay, so a lot of people would have gone for the de-aging. Everyone was talking about de-aging Indiana Jones. What's that going to work like? I mean, I think the verdict's still out on the whole de-aging process. And just as an aside, I don't know if you guys read this, but you know they did a, a, a scene in Mission Impossible 7 where they de-aged Tom Cruise, but it didn't end up using it. That was, I believe, for the scene where um, Gabriel murders uh, he's a younger yeah. person. Okay. So they didn't end up using it. So ah. de-aging is all the rage at yeah. the moment. So I'm going to skip it. It's all right in this movie. I think it's got some flaws in it. Okay, now, um, but I need to ask, because it is in the movie. Did you guys like the de-aging or no, not? No, I didn't I, like it. I thought it was amazing. I thought it was good. Like, I couldn't, w- when they showed him, I thought, well, okay, what's my other point of reference? De Niro in The Irishman. <laughs> dreadful, so, I mean, dreadful. which is like he's got the bluest eyes. His, his eyes look like the, the cat in cat people. Yeah, but <laughs> it looks like when people Gollum. were talking about it, people were talking about it like it was perfect. I don't think it was perfect, though. Yeah. I, I still it's saw a little... sharp, though. It, it, yeah. it, it points the way to doing some serious manipulation, yeah. I think. Um, right, I, I'm on. not going to do that scene. So what I'm going to do is actually my favorite sequence in the movie. I'm going to go for the scene where the de-aging is at an end and we are introduced to an old and disheveled and disillusioned um, Indiana Jones. The reason I love this scene so much is I think it's the only time in the entire script and the film that they get the nostalgia and the characterization right, and for me it's the only real spark in the movie. I'll pick it up where you get introduced to Indiana Jones. Now, Harrison Ford is in incredible shape. He's an 80-year-old guy, right? Mm. He's sitting in his armchair. He's in incredible shape. Wait, um, wait. You, 
as you say that, you're acknowledging that as an 80-year-old, he looks great. Uh, yeah. But the point of the, the scene is... He, we what do you want to get Greg? We cut, we cut from the de-aged Dindy to a decrepit yeah, old yeah, man, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. What I'm saying is, think of where Harrison Ford's been at his very best, like Witness or something like that. He's just been, he's a fantastic actor whose range is tremendous, okay. right? He brings that to the scene. We're introduced to, to a person who is hurt and beaten up. But more so than that, it's not just a physical thing, it's a psychological thing. He gets dressed... He goes to the kitchen scene. Now he lives in a small apartment. Previously, it was a different environment. There was energy. There was happiness to it. Like it was like sepia tones mm. around it in, in Last Crusade, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, it's a white, bleak, clinical, old, broken down apartment. When he makes his coffee in the morning and when he puts his suit on, it hangs like, you know, he's, he's a small figure in it. Yeah, now. he's like gaunt. He's gaunt. You know, um, what does he do with his coffee? He adds a bit of his, his whiskey mm. to it. Now, that is not an Indiana Jones that we've ever seen, but my heart went out to it. That I actually thought, wow, this is ambitious. This is, you are going somewhere with this. When he goes into the classroom and does his lecture, what Harrison Ford is able to construct, able to really um, share with the audience is the sadness of the fall of Indiana Jones. Mm. It's but it's palpable. also a fall of the academic as yes. intellectual celebrity. It, it's, you know? it's, it's palpable. And at times it's even funny. I mean, I also Sorry. have lived through such Bruce, a fall. You, uh, <laughs> you leaned over to me in the movie, yes. right? When he's there and no one's responding to any of his questions. No one cares. <laughs> and Bruce goes, that's my life every day. <laughs> and, and what about he says, what about Indy goes, well, this will be on the exam. Yeah. This is going to be exam. I mean, and I love where Harrison Ford looks and goes, you guys read this stuff? <laughs> you know, it's not, this is on the final. And I just thought, so the indie that we saw in Raiders had everyone captivated. Well, they and, were writing, and they I were love in, you and on I their love you on the eyelids, yeah. right? Yeah. But that carries through even to Crystal Skull, where he's still this uber cool academic, mm. even though he's about 60. But now that he's older, he's, he's, he's retiring, which is a motif that we see in, like, the detective movie, right, or, the, or, the, or that genre. And I just thought that was so – I like that part. It's my favorite scene. Yeah. The, the, thing, the thing for me is, um, you know, when we do a mise-en-scene, we, we normally talk about camera angles or we do something. We look at the look of something, the yeah. construction of a shot or whatever it is. The irony for me is in this one, the reason I chose this is because it's the best character development, for me anyway, it's the best character development by miles in the movie. From here, what happens is he goes to his colleagues, um, and that's when the violence mm. and and they you know they get murdered in front of him. I felt really depressed seeing where he was working. Yeah, as well as like, um, and what about he gets know, that award and then he walks aside and gives it, it to the person on I the side know. of the road? You know, everything academic, intellectual about his contribution as a scholar means nothing to him. And mm. it was, I, I thought that was really tragic. And so again, I, I, I liked the casting. I liked the people in the room with him. Yes. The, the, the older people, the academics. And I thought that was so sad, that whole sequence. I know. Because he was also a little bit like the cantankerous dude. No one <laughs> and this kind of says a lot about the movie, right? So the totally right? uncool academic. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the guy who's like failing the students and they appeal their marks. It's perfectly <laughs> written, perfectly filmed that whole scene. And Harrison Ford is, you know, he's fantastic in it. Here's the weird thing though. As soon as the action kicks in, then it raises some of the issues that we've been talking about in the previous mm. part. The, like, the jarring so tonality. The, the characters yeah. don't work. What is what military extraction? Well, that, we're in the that's pageant. Right. He's 
they're killing like the Nazis are killing. Well, they're not. They're like what are they? They they look more like one's got a very southern accent. I'm sure yes. very deliberately connecting Nazis to the modern yeah, day I'm Nazis. Sure. Yeah, but then they're killing the the polite, friendly academics. It's like totally unnecessary, <laughs> and it's like building well, up. Well, I guess I was so shocked by that because they're just shooting these academics for no reason. But the Boyd Hol- <laughs> the Boyd Holbrook character is one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. Like. Someone comes walking through, they're just crossing the corridor, yeah. just shoot him. Like, what? what's that about? Like, let's not make it farcical. Yeah. Like, you can make it, like, a lot of people well, make it. I think that was also a, a, an attempt to differentiate it from anything else in the franchise. Because there's nothing like that in but the rest of the franchise. But it was a really hamfisted way of um, having the difference between them and the CIA agent. Yeah. It's like, you can't kill people. Don't kill people. She's trying to keep them under control, but yes. they're rednecks who are killing people. So imagine this. What if the whole movie was about. The DH Indiana Jones, the fall from grace. Mm. At that point, you got everyone on board. You then throw Sala into it, and they go on a rip roaring traditional oh, adventure. I would have loved that a, back, a Back to the Future Two style thing, where he relives this Nazi train journey just over and over again. But he's old, and he has to sneak and help himself. You know, some sort oh, of that twisted universe. Just thing. between the two of you, you've pitched two ideas that are so much better <laughs> okay. than Dial of Destiny. Except they go, you got uh, your JFK alternative universe. You got your what if we're all trapped on the train and you got yeah. to, but that although that's been done. Well, so Jack Gyllenhaal. Jake Gyllenhaal. Be careful, yeah. you don't want to be. Which is you, you, you're into coach. Black Mirror territory there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but Indiana Jones, it showed what the character, it showed what goodwill remains in Indiana Jones. They just mm. wasted the whole lot. Yeah. That's what they did. But the capture for that one moment, when Salah comes in at the airport, there they capture for a, a, a fleeting moment. When Marion comes in at the end, I was just going, really, that's that's the way Marion finishes uh, this entire Well, actually, you thing? told me that Marion, um, Karen Allen, was desperate to be in the movie. She was, an, she was upset that she's like an, she really is an afterthought, right? Yeah. Uh, also, the other thing is, what's, what's with the writing there? She files for divorce. He goes to Archimedes. <laughs> he's passed out. And she's back now? <laughs> she, she's forgiven him for what reason? What changed? Yeah. I think, uh, isn't it implied yeah, Phoebe Waller-Bridge you know. has tipped her off or done a nice thing yes, by getting you know, her? I yeah. don't know, man. Like, seriously. All right. Well, I guess that's what you're going to get with a franchise a blockbuster controlled by studios. Disney. Yeah. Let's say that. You I know. Mean, that's the other thing. Disney's so voracious in its consumption of, like, intellectual property that mm. it's going to make everything in its own image. All right. Sorry, Walt Disney Company. (laughs) (laughs) You got slammed. Let's go on to our next mise en scene with Bruce and Mission Impossible 7. Mise en scène. So I have an example of exactly what's wrong with Mission Impossible 7 (laughs) in this scene. So obviously I'm going to do the motorcycle scene. Right. I hope our audience um, is still with us. Uh, look, if you loved these movies, you, of course you're with us. You, I mean, you can. I mean, you just enjoy movies. Yeah, okay, of course. Right? But, but what I want to say to the audience is, okay, here's the, I'm one of Tom Cruise's biggest fanboys. Yeah, I okay? love. Tom I Cruise. love everything yes. Tom Cruise. Yes. How many times did you guys come over my place and I go, let's throw the ramp, jump well, on again? Wait, don't, don't go, don't go. Oh, this is what oh, I wanted sorry, to yeah. say. Okay. So right. the amount of times we'd be over at Herschel's place <laughs> or my place, and we put on that YouTube sequence of how they did the Tom Cruise jump off the cliff. Mm-hmm. So we all got excited because we used to do this with the Burj Khalifa thing in Mission Impossible. Yeah, let's watch him run five, down the building right? again. Yeah. yeah. So I. Was so excited. And, yeah, I mean, okay, the thing is, it's the biggest stunt in history. Fine. Um, okay, Tom Cruise did it himself. Yes, he jumped over that ramp. I think it was like nine six times. times. Six, six times. times. Okay, he actually did it. 
I am the first person to say there is something powerful about a physical body going over a cliff rather than digitally green screening crews in at some point, right? There's something amazing, and Cruz has talked about, he wanted you to feel like you were there because there was actually somebody doing it, right? Then when I saw it actually in the movie, it's mm. so poorly done. So firstly, the lead up is Tom Cruise is simply riding a motorbike for it's got to be 10 to 12 minutes of screen time. Yeah. I would say the first rule of action cinema, first rule of classical montage, you don't take a guy who's the lead, the drive of the action, off screen for more than a couple of minutes. It's just you don't do it. It's dumb because you render that person completely passive. So Tom Cruise, in effect, becomes the passive figure for about 10 to 12 minutes while Hayley Outwell becomes the woman from Downton... Uh, no, from the crown, the the daughter, uh, the the Anne carried from where I can't remember. Yeah, the her personality name. changed. So, so, the, so yeah. in effect, what we do is we substitute the one hero, the male protagonist, for another protagonist, and the only way you can make that work is to let the guy ride his bike for ages, because <laughs> there's so much exposition in this other sequence that we need to follow. Because there's bloody masks and everything going everywhere. What happens and when what he actually, actually takes the? What if she taps with the bank card for like twenty million dollars? <laughs> That's, that that's the only security they got. So here's where I was so disappointed. So, of course, Craig Ocean and I have seen this before on the Tom Cruise videos on YouTube. When he goes for the jump, even I knew what it was going to look sort of like. I was so excited to see how they'd put it. Mm. You know, YouTube is a documented capturing of the action. This is a narrativizing capturing of the action. So how are you going to put it into narrative? What do they do? They just do the cuts in YouTube. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. So, no, with first, one exception, Bruce. the first rule of action, you need continuity to get any kind of dramatic punch from it. He jumps off the cliff. He falls. They hold it. Hey, it looks amazing. I know it's Tom Cruise. Where do we cut to from there? We cut away back to the train. Hmm. Then we cut back on him, and it's tight on his face, and his skin's rippling. Hey, that's all impressive. But there's no sense of of scope and continuity and it's well, but then he's having a conversation with out, Benji I know I, what about Point Break yeah. what about um, the beginning of is it Octopussy with Bond yes with Jaws Jaws no yeah. no no Moonraker Moonraker right yeah. but that is you stay with them you stay, until they you, hit the this ground this is my whole point they thought that the the scale of the action and the spectacle of the action was jumping off no, the spectacles are what you do once you've jumped off. And if you cut away, you are taking away the intensity of the action. Not only that, I thought to myself, the only way you redeem this, give me a wide shot of the way he's chasing the train mm. as it comes down. No, they cut away from that. Back to Haley Atwell, who's now involved in a fight scene, and he mysteriously comes <laughs> bursting through the window. Ridiculous. What about Some levels of continuity breaking that make no sense in anyone who's directing action. I don't know what Christopher McCoy is doing. If he gets if he gets into the wrong carriage, she's dead. She's <laughs> no, like but what? It's, but it's, I don't mind. I don't mind the slapstick of him coming through the the right carriage. And he happens to get the exact window that wipes out don't the dude. Worry. That was Skyfall level convenience. Yeah. that was stupid. And then to say, oh. Well, I mean, that one's not AI. That's just Tom Cruise. <laughs> All the other nonsense. I know. Why does the AI predict AI? that? See, what I don't understand is, um, if you compare any of the listeners, just go to YouTube and watch the Burj Khalifa scene. What is the most stunning moment? 
it's holding on Tom Cruise running down a building. You don't cut away. But we had that. We and also the weird thing about where this was placed, it did well on social medias, but it came out it, like in the film narratively, it's heaps later, so yep. it's no longer exciting. We all know what's going to happen. Yep. But you look at the, the he holds onto a plane, and that's in the first ten minutes in, yes. in one of the movies. Um, the the rock climbing in number two, which yep. was famous because it was in the Limp Biscuit film clip, and <laughs> that was number one. But everyone knew he's going to use one hand yeah. to climb up a cliff, and everyone was super pumped. And yeah. he does it at the beginning of the film. Yeah. Uh, it, it's weird to have to wait so long, at least two hours, before he does the stunt. But, and then also, to you know, to postpone that, le- you know, and to stretch the level of anticipation we've all got because the guy's riding a bike for 12 minutes of screen time, mm. cutting between him and Hayley Atwell. I don't think think the YouTube thing helped the scene because the other thing is, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but when we looked at the surface of the ground, it's very rocky, right? Yeah, yeah. When the bike runs up that ramp, it's perfectly uniform. Yeah. So we know I mean, the some dude's of the digital on ramp. effects are not brilliant. Like you can tell some of the yeah. effects. I don't know if you guys noticed, but they haven't been able to blend perfectly the landscape. Well, I think it was background. a mistake to release that footage without the effects complete. Yeah. Like just make everyone believe there were effects there. But then, yeah. of course, it's not real. But when they remove a cable when he's hanging onto a plane, we can all accept that in the yep. cinema. But what yep. we can't accept is, well, there was a big ramp there, and now we know he's going over a digital computer game. I agree. They should never have released the YouTube. Okay, wait. Can we yeah. just pay respect? I believe if from an action point of view, if I'm there mm. counting action points, yeah. everything's redeemed by the final train sequence. The, the mean, train action sequence. sequence is one of the best action sequences I've ever seen. The carriages falling off the bridge, which... I said in the cinema, I, I swear that's the same bridge and the same... From, I didn't look it up. From the beginning of One Indy. of us was going to go away and look that uh, up. We I didn't look that up. I was no, meant to be. But for the, for, I'm, I'm a gamer, so you guys might not know, but there's a game called Uncharted. Mm. And I swear to God, that scene is that's out of Uncharted absolute, too. And I don't know Uncharted that well, but I've seen it at your house. And that sequence is almost like it. But I've seen the fundamentals of every platformer. That's yeah. that's a platformer. But at the no, but jumping through the train, the zero the, the zero gravity when you fall, yeah, that's right. in Uncharted as well. I mean, the, okay, I thought visually it was spectacular. And it's quite suspenseful because, you know, each one's going and the next one and the next one. In fact, that's what they needed on the motorcycle scene was a kind of turn. It's also too little too late because by that point, Gabriel oh, yeah. I was, has laid backwards onto a truck. I was annoyed at that point. Oh, <laughs> that was the moment where I think you, you yeah. and Herschel and I checked out when Gabriel falls back off a train moving at 100 miles an hour and mm-hmm. lands on the bed of a truck that's about two meters across. In a at shot, that point, I'm sorry, I'm done. In a shot that looks like a sitfall by the actor from about a meter up. <laughs> I mean, at that point, it's like, what? Yeah, that was what? crazy. What was that? Not in eighty four, but like with the momentum coming off a train moving at that speed, I don't care if you fell into the biggest padding of all time. You got to get some sort of horizontal movement. The reason the I was talking after well, it's up. like Einstein doesn't. So this is completely without Einstein's theory of relativity. It mm. doesn't because he should have slammed against the side, <laughs> bumped up, roll, and got another twenty meters to the side. Twenty meters. At he should have rolled two hundred meters. <laughs> he would have taken the truck with him. <laughs> Okay. Wait, and the last thing I wanted to say was, the other big gripe I've got is they're swapping around uh, a, like a billion dollar key mm. by putting it in in, each, in in your in your pocket. So Gabriel falls back off the truck, 
doesn't check his pocket, mind you, for at least the next few minutes as the truck pulls away, then goes and reaches into his pocket and he's shocked when the key's not there because mm. it's been lifted. Yeah. Who's keeping a hundred a billion dollar key in, in, in your in Yeah, your just pants as an aside as well. I don't put five bucks in my pants. Cruz has gotta stop doing his sleight of hand thing. Like it's too dramatic. It's funny. It's too much. It's that ridiculous. was so bad. That's good stuff. That's Tom Cruise at <laughs> his best when he thinks he's great at stuff. Like running. No is man, his Tom Tom Cruise one. I reckon he's great at almost like I, I've I've so much respect for this dude, right? I reckon but it's not a great movie. I reckon Christopher McQuarrie is going to like the producer going, Is there any way you can talk Tom <laughs> out of doing the magic stuff? And they're going, like, if you come at it from this way, get him to stop doing his magic. Is there yeah, any yeah, way we yeah, can yeah. do it? And Tom would go, No, no, no. It's you know what would be it's awesome? If in the next movie there's a scene, it's like starts in Las Vegas, it's David Copperfield. <laughs> But then he pulls his face <laughs> off and it's Tom Cruise underneath it. Well, that would fit with the tone of MI7. All right, now. I think that's uh, – we've covered the two films. We've, we've talked about them. Time will give us a better read on that, I think, yeah. in the future. I've been talking both these movies up too much. I told you guys when, when, when you I have. had the idea to do this uh, middle, middle of season kind of thing, mm. and I was going, it's the greatest run of blockbusters yeah. in history, right? I mean, Oppenheimer and Barbie we better are, be good, We are man. zero from two right now, and I'm really disappointed with All that. All right. I have some final questions for okay, you. Okay, go. Out of these two films, <clears throat> which is better? I'm going to say Mission Impossible. For me, I need to see him again because I've seen uh, Indiana Jones twice. I think it's better than the I first think time maybe, I think maybe maybe Mission Impossible. I think Mission Impossible. Okay, and certainly as a as as a rewatchable, Indy's almost dead. Yeah, okay. how many times yeah, are you gonna, gonna, go gonna watch, watch Indiana that. Jones? Well, I'm never watching it again. Okay, let me ask you this: What is your favorite Indiana Jones film? Oh, that is a very difficult question. I think I still have to go Raiders, mm. but it's a close one with. Last Crusade. So both of them get five stars, and then Temple of Doom, four and three quarter stars. I mean, Temple of Doom is incredibly racist, but such a beautiful film. Herschel? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm very close. I think, look, I'm probably spot on with you there, Bruce. Yeah. I think Last Crusade, I can't believe what they reached. I don't know how you put your heads together and you come up with something that yeah, good yeah, for a third movie. Mm. Almost a decade it's after nuts. the franchise began. But also, if, for folks who haven't seen Temple of Doom in a long time, and a lot of it's dated, I completely agree with that. Go back into it, and it's, some of the set pieces are going to blow oh. your mind. It's what about just on the beautiful. bridge when they cut the bridge and they all put uh, their arms down on the rope and they're going to scale up the it's rock? It's fantastic. It's it's I, okay, I'm for Last Crusade. Last Crusade, yeah. yeah, yeah but cool. the same order, favorite. Look, Although I, I dropped Temple a little too, uh, maybe an extra start. All right. Yeah. Mission Impossible, what is your favorite Mission Impossible? For me, number one. Easy. Wow. Yeah, it's, look, it's a really difficult one. This I watched number, as I told you, I uh, said before, I watched number three about a month ago. I think it's a fantastic movie. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman is one of the craziest villains, one of the scariest villains I've seen. I'm going to go one and Fallout as the best. Mm. But if you need to spy movies like I am, then definitely one. Mm. That was awesome. Um, Ghost Protocol's a hell of a lot of fun. Um, Rogue Nation is a hell of a lot of fun. Mm. The only one I don't like is two, but I'm going to give it another go, actually. Give two another go. I actually think you could go even further and go, what's the best sequence in a Mission Impossible film? And I think it's the Prague sequence in MI1. It's just shot perfectly. Uh, Complicated I, I can't spatial get past coordinates. The, the missile launches in, um, is it Fallout? I think? Oh, is where he's hanging at the, the side of the plane? No, no, just oh, the, the, the helicopter. End sequence, the helicopter. The, the, yeah, the helicopter yeah. and all that. Yes, when he's flying the helicopter, he's going to get yeah, it off. Yeah, what okay. about, um, you compare the hand to hand combat in, in Dead Reckoning, what about Fallout in the, in the nightclub toilet scene where that mm. dude takes, yeah, that's takes on. Um, Henry Cavill Super, Henry and Tom Henry Cruise, Cavill, yeah. and he beats the hell out of them. 
Yeah. And then, and remember when Henry Cavill, like he, he, he always like, punch, he like flexes his fists and he yeah. comes walking like the Terminator. Yeah. That scene is an extended masterclass in hand-to-hand combat. Oh. Better than Jason Bourne, mm. better than mm. anything. Watch that fight again. Craig, right. are you going to preview what we're seeing tomorrow? I, I am, I am. So our next episode, um, we are going to do... <laughs> That, this has been our special f- franchise blockbuster yes. special where we're looking at a history of films regarding the current films. But we have two very unique films coming out. So next week, Barbie versus Oppenheimer. Yes. Uh, it's our, our film. Uh, one film is a literal celebration of pink femininity, comedy, and the success of a doll. And the other, perhaps an overly self-important atomic bomb drama <laughs> by, by what? I disagree with that, man. I, overly self-important? You don't I think so? I know I've been talking up these movies. And I just can't believe it's three hours. We're not from two. I'm going to go the on the limb us, here. I should say the three of us are going tomorrow to watch this limb at the Sydney premiere. is going to be a masterpiece. Can I just say it's by a uber self-important filmmaker who saved cinema. <laughs> no, Tom Cruise, with, who actually saved cinema. Saved cinema with Tenet, remember that? Claim yeah. by Christopher Nolan, like, come no, on. No, he didn't save Tenet. We he, watched, he discovered entropy. We, we watched Tenet just recently, oh, and we yeah. went nuts on it. That's so, like, why do I, 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 I love that you have good faith for it, but you had good faith for the hey, two films. The reason, okay, okay, say this, the reason I have faith in it, a long, long time ago, I read The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rose, won the Pulitzer Prize way back when. Mm. I'm reading it again now. I think it's genuinely one of the, most interesting historical sustained time periods in history. Mm. The, the the personalities include presidents and war leaders, Albert Einstein. What about Matt Damon? Matt, Damon. Matt Damon's going to be a genius. Bro, in it. Whoa, it's not just Matt Damon. You, you uh, also got, um, what's the other dude? Uh, Robert um, Downey Jr. Uh, Emma Thompson, yeah. uh, the, the tenant guy. Uh. Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> Kenneth Horror. Branagh. Kenneth Branagh brings almost the Remember, same the brings almost the same accent that, as the dude in Tenet. Whenever when I'm I first not, saw I that preview, it. I was sure they and I thought yes, I thought they'd brought Werner Herzog into yes. the movie, and I thought whoa, Werner Herzog is in a Christopher Nolan movie, and it wasn't. I'm Herzog. looking forward to Cillian Murphy. I think this is going to be are, yeah, he will win like Best him. Actor. He's already I got it. Think He's got Best Actor. So three of us there tomorrow. All right, for listen, three so tomorrow hours, we're going man. to watch Oppenheimer yes. at the Sydney premiere. And then we're going to catch Barbie later this week yes. and try and get out uh, to for Barbie. you that uh, very soon so you can uh, listen to our episode and then make your choice or mm. hopefully you would have seen them both. You know then. what? I know when we first pitched Barbie, like a couple of people at this table, probably myself, thought this is the nuttiest thing I've ever heard, but I cannot wait to see yeah, it. Barbie looks but amazing. But look at the press it's getting. I've sent you two articles at least from American press yeah, in our WhatsApp I d- about I've got the it, competition yeah. between these two yes. films. Barbie versus Oppenheimer. Yeah, did you, did you get my post about the, um, yeah, the from, Barbie Hammer? The yeah, Barbie, Barbie yeah, from, have you, have um, I mean, the interesting thing is, compared to what we just said today about these two big blockbuster films, Oppenheimer is only a $100 million movie, and I think Barbie is just under the $100 million. So if you think about it, they're ahead by $200 million I'm saying all, just on these all my money is on Barbie. I think Barbie's going to be the winner this season. You know, I got uh, tickets to Barbie... Uh, and then I, I casually just didn't do anything with them because you had to do it <laughs> online. And then I went to click to get our tickets, and they go, "We're sorry, it's gone." And I just thought, "Well, that was fast. I had no idea." Yeah. No, no, Saw this that. is a big deal. Yeah. This movie is going to be a big deal. So join us next time for our Barbie versus Oppenheimer. We are also been doing a lot of Suspiria. 
yes. watching and we're going to we're going to compare that maybe to Opera by Argento and the new Suspiria that's coming up in our off season then I might just announce now our first episode of season 2 which we've already been looking at yeah. which is across the spider verse yes versus everything everywhere all, all at once, once. So oh and can I quickly say multiverses. people should check out a series of like catchy video reviews I'm doing for Sydney Uni it's on Instagram and TikTok, yep. and I've just done Across the Spider-Verse and releasing short like Indie, Mission Impossible, and then I think I'm also doing Bo is Afraid. In, How do we um, see these? So there's just a... Uh, Sydney Uni's Instagram, yeah? Yeah, ins- yeah Sydney okay. Uni's Instagram, I'm on that. All right, great. And it's fun stuff. I rate, I give it uh, either a pass, credit, distinction, or HD. Oh, boy. <laughs> and uh, another reminder, we mentioned your book earlier, The Art yes. of Pure Cinema, yes. about Hitchcock, but also about De Palma. Mm. Um, we don't want to spoil anything, but a certain famous director yeah. yes. that oh, we've ooh, been talking Bruce, to. Glenn right? Oh, can we announce it? Can we announce it? No, no, I don't no, want to no. announce it yet because I, I haven't been able to lock is, in schedules but yet. I would like to just give a suggestion that it's a very famous um, horror slash yeah. uh, auteur. A, auteur. A24 auteur. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 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 I, I haven't been able to lock it in. I'm not saying that's not saying anything. However, because there's a lot of films coming out of there. Bruce, he had your book and he, you didn't even have to give it I to know, him. I know, and it was really nice. And so uh, it looks like this person is really keen to do a, like a, you know, a, a sort of symposium, symposium, a research symposium, and then um, we'll see where it goes from there. So I'm trying, I'm, I'm actually looking into whether we can get this person out here. Um, but for that, I'll need to raise some cash. And then that <laughs> poor, money. poor person is yeah. going to sit in this room with us and do a film versus film. All right, well, that's it for this episode. Join us next time for Barbie versus Oppenheimer. This has been Film vs. Film. I'm Craig. I'm Herschel. I'm Bruce. See you next time. Take two. Film. Verse. Film. Film.